You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of December 8th, 2022. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Chow for Champions deliver Thanksgiving meals to 90 Arvada first responders. Annual food drive for first responders working on holiday enters its third year. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Arvada Police Chief Link Strait announces retirement. Link Strait's retiring from APD after 35 years. Ed Brady named interim chief by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Sugar Plum Fairies come to Lakewood with the Nutcracker Ballet by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Multi-million dollar complex promises help for Lakewood's unhoused by Andrew Fraley for the Jeffco Transcript. Old Golden Candlelight Walk Brightens Spirits, Warms Hearts by Deborah Grigsby for the Golden Transcript. Golden adopts five-year racial equity, diversity, and inclusion action plan. Officials see plan as call to action for whole community by Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Chow for Champions deliver Thanksgiving meals to 90 Arvada first responders. Annual food drive for first responders working on holidays on holidays enters third year by Riley Dunn. Arvada first responders working on Thanksgiving were treated to free meals during their shifts thanks to Chow for Champions, an annual effort to provide meals to Arvada police officers, firefighters, and emergency medical service providers on Thanksgiving and Christmas. This year's Thanksgiving Day delivery effort saw 90 meals provided for the first time by the Arvada Hilton Garden Inn, which joined the program this year as a catering partner delivered by over two dozen volunteers. First responders were treated to traditional Thanksgiving fare, including turkey, stuffing, gravy, mashed potatoes, green bean casserole, and sweet potato casserole. Chow for Champions was founded in 2020 by Arvada City Council member Lauren Simpson and resident Kimber Just, who has since moved away. This year's effort was organized by Simpson in partnership with the Arvada Chamber of Commerce handling sponsorships. What's really special about Chow is that it's growing, Simpson said. We're in our third year now of doing this and I really think the program has hit a new level. The Hilton Garden Inn coming on as our catering partner is elevating the menu and support from sponsors and community volunteers alike is growing too, which I'm extremely grateful for. This was our best Thanksgiving yet, and I think we needed that, Simpson continued. Losing Dylan Vekoff only a year after Gordon Beasley, we've all felt that. But our team hasn't wavered. All of our first responders are still out there doing these important but often dangerous jobs. They do it for their community, and this is how we as a community can say thank you to them. 
The philanthropic effort will also give out meals to Arvada first responders on Christmas Day. Simpson said she is still looking for delivery drivers for Christmas and donations to support the meals. Volunteers can contact Simpson to get involved at lsimpson at arvada.org, and donations can be made to the Arvada Chamber of Commerce. This year's Thanksgiving sponsors include the City of Arvada, Arvada Jefferson Kiwanis Club, Arvada Elks Lodge, and Arvada Rent Alls. Simpson and Soncio is confirmed as a sponsor for the Christmas edition of Chow for Champions. Arvada Police Chief Link Strait announces retirement. Link Strait retiring from APD after 35 years. Ed Brady named interim chief by Riley Dunn. After 35 years with the department, Arvada Police Chief Link Strait announced his retirement on December 1st, effective December 31st. APD Deputy Chief Ed Brady, who was a finalist for the position along with Strait when the position was last available in 2018, will begin serving as interim chief on December 5th. A graduate of Northern Arizona University, Strait's tenure with APD began in 1987 and spanned his entire professional career. He began as a patrol officer and worked his way through the department ranks, becoming a motorcycle officer early in his career and earning promotions from sergeant to commander to deputy chief. He was named chief on June 2nd, 2018, succeeding now deputy chief manager Don Wick, who was chief for 10 years. It has been my greatest professional joy to serve as an Arvada police officer these past 35 years, Strait said. Over the course of his career, Strait worked to advance the Jeffcom Regional Dispatch Center and Jefferson County Regional Crime Laboratory, encouraging the collection of DNA evidence to prosecute crimes that typically went undetected. He also helped lead the Jefferson County Critical Incident Response Team, which investigates officer-involved shootings. The last two years brought scores of tragedies to the department, the Old Town Arvada shooting in 2021 claimed the life of Arvada police officer Gordon Beasley, and APD officer Dylan Vakoff was killed while responding to a domestic violence call earlier this year. Arvada City Manager Lori Gillis praised Strait's leadership of the department during these trying times and his involvement in the community. Over the past two years, through tragedy and healing, he has brought strength and compassion to the public department and the community, Gillis said. Link's dedication to leading the department has never wavered. He has been a leader in areas beyond APD, facilitating the city council's strategic planning process and serving on the board of the Ralston House, among other citywide committees. Strait's predecessor, Wick, echoed Gillis' sentiment and highlighted his commitment to the Arvada community. Having served with Link for more than 30 years, I am proud of Link's accomplishments throughout his career with the Arvada Police Department. Wick said, Link's commitment to the department and the commun community is exemplary. As a community, we are all grateful to Link for the way he helped lead through challenging times. Arvada's communication manager of infrastructure, Katie Patterson gave an update on APD's search for a replacement for chief, stating that the city of Arvada is well positioned for an internal appointment for chief of police.
Quote, City Manager Lori Gillis will lead the process to replace Arvada Police Chief Link Strait and intends to fill the position with an internal candidate, Patterson said in a statement. By leveraging talent within the organization, the city will continue to ensure certainty in the police department's leadership and move the organization forward. Sugar Plum Fairies Come to Lakewood with the Nutcracker Ballet by Andrew Fraley. Though the mice battling gingerbread soldiers will be doing a modern improvisation, the Nutcracker performance by Ballet Ariel at the Lakewood Cultural Center will be mostly traditional. A Sugar Plum Fairy will rule the cold, sweet lands, and a little girl will meet a mysterious Nutcracker on Christmas Eve. Dance company founder Elena Norton Ballet Ariel is known for modernizing classics. Quote, For me, my style is to do things that are very beautiful and interesting to watch, said Norton, who choreographed the Nutcracker production. I think people enjoy our shows because of that. They are both interesting and the choreography is very beautiful. The production in Lakewood is a fairly traditional version, she said. The Sugar Plum solo and duet, for instance, draw from the original choreography by Marius Petitpa, she said. But her production is, quote, updated with our own touches. One thing that makes our works so interesting is that we do bring in some contemporary movement in some parts of the ballet, she continued. Like in our battle scene, our mice are doing a modern improvisation, which is actually kind of unusual for the Nutcracker. Productions traditionally have a lot of slow and stately dancing, Norton added. She wanted hers to be, quote, more lively and kind of intricate instead. In the snow scene, Waltz of the Snowflakes, I try to sort of create some sense of the movement of snow in the way that the dancers moved the speed of their movements, and the type of movements that they were making, she said. Versus a lot of times, a lot of productions are just more traditional ballet stuff. It doesn't exactly invoke snow, you know. She founded Ballet Ariel in 1998 and is known for original ballets and adaptations including Ballerina by Degas, Ricky Tiki Tavi, Tale of Molly Brown, and Sleeping Beauty's Dream. The Nutcracker is a classic for the holidays because of its artistic layers from dance to music, Norton said. It's a beautiful ballet, she said. With the Tchaikovsky score as the backdrop, it's what makes the Nutcracker so popular. The beautiful score that he wrote for it. He created these different worlds with his music of the snow and the sugar plum castle and different countries that people travel from to celebrate. Performances at Lakewood Cultural Center, 470 South Allison Parkway, open at 2 p.m. on December 10th. It runs at the same time on December 11th, 17th, 18th, and 22nd, and 23rd. There are 7 p.m. showings on December 16th and 17th. Multi-million dollar complex promises help for Lakewood's unhoused. By Andrew Fraley. Marshall Moody and Paul Johnson sat under a tree in Lakewood beside the roar of cars on West Colfax Avenue. It was a sunny September day. 
After losing his home in public housing, Johnson was wrestling with what to do next, while Moody took a break for the afternoon from hunting for a place to stay. Both have been unhoused on and off in Lakewood for years. Police show up to tell you to leave, but don't have an answer as to where you, we can go, Moody said. When the city does give you housing, it's like a setup for failure, Johnson added. A setup because of the difficulty of keeping to the rules at various shelters and public housing, such as curfews and not being allowed to have alcohol and the lack of tolerance if they are broken. I shouldn't have to follow any more rules than others staying in the apartments have to, Johnson continued. Now in the cold, snowy November weather, the Jefferson Center, a nonprofit supplier of mental health care across the metro area, will soon be bringing what it says is a partial solution to Lakewood, a 40-unit permanent supportive housing complex. It broke ground on November 29th and is expected to be finished in the spring of 2024. The solid ground project will be a fresh start for those without stable housing said Jefferson Center CEO and President Kiara Kunzler at a groundbreaking ceremony. The causes of homelessness are varied and complex. Factors range from job loss to mental illness and addiction issues. Another main factor is the rising cost of homes and rentals, leading to the idea of housing first. The approach, an older idea, but recently gaining steam in Colorado, aims to prioritize getting people experiencing homelessness into permanent housing, ending their homelessness, according to advocates like the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Within that approach is permanent supportive housing, which provides free services for those that may not have been able to support themselves alone. Jefferson Center's complex will work around the concept. We have a lot of folks that are homeless and chronically homeless with disabilities that really need additional support to maintain an independent living, said Taylor Klepper, Director of Navigation and Housing Services for the Jefferson Center and Project Manager for the complex. A lot of what we have noticed through doing this work is a real gap in terms of this level of care, this permanent supportive housing level of care. Because of that, the main people the complex will work to help are those who are homeless with, quote, a disabling condition. Slow barrier, Klepper said. I'd love to take the folks that don't match to other housing or haven't been successful in other housing situations. For folks with criminal backgrounds that may have trouble getting into housing, this is going to be the lowest barrier housing we can make based on our vouchers. People will be accepted into the complex through vouchers from the Jefferson Center. The center manages over 400 housing vouchers for the State Division of Housing, which uses a metro-wide coordinated entry system and vulnerability factors. As Klepper explained, more factors means more likely to get matched with the housing. The other half of the center's vouchers and the system for people to get into the complex are through Foothills Regional Housing, the Public-Private Regional Housing Authority, which she said gives a bit more leeway. A disabling condition might not have to be a federal disability through Social Security, but could simply be a provider stating a person has a disabling condition. 
Homeless advocates, such as Therese Howard of Hand, have critiqued the coordinated entry system and vouchers, call, though, calling it a, quote, homeless industrial complex. The expectation that you go to a shelter and get a case manager and then get housing is just not reality, said Howard, elaborating that many people don't feel safe going to a shelter and the little amount of space and case managers there are at these shelters. You're expected to go through this homeless system, and your chances are very low, and yet there is no willingness to admit that. According to the county's annual point-in-time count, criticized by some advocates like Howard and the National Alliance to End Homelessness as a vast undercount, about 500 people were homeless across Jefferson County on a single night in January. Of those 500, about 200 were unsheltered or literally on the streets. The others were in emergency shelters or transitional housing. There are only 40 units, though, and as Klepper explained, the center will be working with the city and others to find those who are they find to be the most vulnerable. Realistically, as we get closer, we will be working very closely with our community partners, specifically working with our regional homeless outreach workers, those really in the trenches and know who may benefit from that type of housing, she said. People like Moody and Johnson, who do not have many vulnerability factors, would not necessarily be helped by this complex, as they wouldn't be first in line. Johnson's mistrust of social workers, who he said has made him feel guilty for using his VA benefits in the past, also causes him to avoid outreach workers. The complex will operate like an apartment building, with tenants paying rent and signing a lease. The vouchers are attached to the unit itself and guarantee affordable housing. Roughly 30% of the tenant's income, with the difference being paid for by the Division of Housing or Foothills. The tenant could pay nothing if they have no income or full rent if they're on a higher income scale, Klepper explained. In terms of cost, the building itself is being paid for by the $13.5 million in state tax credits from the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program, which the center received in March of 2021. For ongoing services, Klepper elaborated that developer fees, Medicaid and insurance payments, and rent income will fund them along with some state and private funding. As to how permanent, permanent supportive housing is, Klepper said it's independent living. This could be somebody's house for the rest of their life, if this is the appropriate level of care and this is what they are needing. Old Golden Candlelight Walk Brightens Spirits, Warms Hearts by Deborah Grigsby. Downtown Golden took on a festive glow as more than 6,000 people and a few festively dressed dogs gathered downtown for the annual Old Golden Candlelight Walk. Usually held on the first Friday in December, the time-honored tradition marks the beginning of the holiday season with a beautiful candlelit walk down historic Washington Avenue. Friends, families, and neighbors bundled up to sing carols and enjoy the small-town holiday vibe. Local merchants and outdoor cafes offered coffee, hot cider, and cocoa. Commemorative candles were available for purchase.
The walk concluded in Parfit Park, where Golden Mayor Laura Weinberg was joined by eight-year-old Claire Kelly to flip the official switch, turning on 50,000 holiday lights along Clear Creek in the downtown business district. Kelly's name was selected from a random drawing. The drawing was open to all children ages 5 to 12 and who live in a golden area zip code. Golden adopts five-year racial equity, diversity, and inclusion action plan. Official C plan as call to action for whole community by Corinne Westerman. Over the next five years, Golden will take definitive, tangible steps toward making both the city organization and the whole community more welcoming and inclusive. More public documents will be available to those who don't speak English or have different abilities. City boards and commissions recruiting process will be more inclusive, and the city will contract more with diverse small businesses, to name a few examples. The Golden City Council recently adopted a five-year racial equity diversity, and inclusion action plan. The plan, which has been compiled by consultant group MIG over the past 16 months, outlines four goals. One, create a culture of inclusion and community belonging throughout the community of Golden. Two, increase access to services and resources for diverse community members. Three, foster an organizational culture and environment within the city of Golden that's committed to racial equity, diversity, and inclusion. And four, expand economic opportunities for diverse businesses. It outlines several strategies toward achieving, achieving each goal over the next five years. Even though the city is the one adopting the plan, MIG consultants Kate Welty and Carolyn Verhen said everyone who lives and works in Golden should see this as a call to action. Everyone has the ability to take action in their own sphere of influence, Verhan continued. Additionally, city officials said they need the community's help to ensure these goals are achieved in a timely, effective way, so all of Golden can benefit from a more equitable, diverse, and inclusive environment. As Councillor Rob Reed asserted, we have work to do. Building the Plan in June 2021, the city approved $100,000 contract with MIG. Since then, the firm has met with stakeholders around the community, hosted four focus groups with residents and young people, and conducted a survey among community members. In developing the action plan, Welty and Verhan described how race was the leading element because of how widespread and damaging racial inequities are in the United States. They outlined some examples of racism in Golden's history such as the KKK's activities in the 1920s and redlining exclusionary zoning policies in their presentation to city council. However, the two emphasized how the READY action plan is overall intersectional, examining how to make Golden a better place for people of all ages, abilities, gender identities, sexual orientations, socioeconomic backgrounds, religions, and other demographics. Along with the five-year timeline, MIG also recommended the city add READY, R-E-D-I, leadership duties to an existing job or create a new position dedicated to it. 
Either way, the person in this role should have an appropriate ready training and report directly to the city manager, Wealthy explained. Carly Lorenz, assistant city manager, said these duties will be added to an existing job. Although Golden is determining which position and when based on workload. In voting to adopt the action plan, city councilors examined how they saw it as guidance. They may alter the timeline or strategies based on additional community input. Councilor J.J. Trout believed that while the plan wasn't perfect, it was a good start. She wanted to see Golden take tangible steps now, saying the city has a long journey ahead. The final version of the Ready Action Plan, including the entire five-year timeline and all the outlined strategies, is available at guidinggolden.com slash striving-for-racial-equity. Golden High School singers share holiday spirit on local radio station. Staff report. Golden High School's 24th Street Singers are providing carols of the bells for 96.9 The Cloud. The group recently recorded a number of holiday songs for the Golden-based radio station. The vocal ensemble, directed by music teacher Mel Augenstein, will air daily on the radio station through December 24th. Chuck Lontine, who owns The Cloud, said... He wanted to do this for the community since launching the station in 2016. He thanked Principal Brian Conroy, Augenstein, and the singers for all their hard work and partnership. For more information, visit thecloud.fm. Grocery, convenience stores to sell wine. Change starts in March by Tamara Chung, The Colorado Sun. After counting up the remaining votes from Denver, Proposition 125 changed direction and narrowly passed, letting Coloradans buy a bottle of wine at the grocery store. Grocery and convenience stores with a license to sell beer can begin selling wine March 1st. That's approximately 1,819 licensees as of June 2021. According to the Department of Revenue, they'll also be able to offer beer and wine tastings. We're pleased that Coloradans will soon be able to pick up a bottle of wine when purchasing groceries, said Rick Ryder, campaign director for Wine in Grocery Stores. Consumer habits are evolving, and it was inevitable that either this election or once soon thereafter, that Colorado would become the 40th state to have wine in grocery stores. The measure was losing by less than a percentage point for most of election night and the next two days. The yes votes jumped ahead on the third evening. As votes were counted, the opinion was stark between rural and urban communities. Rural communities voted largely against Proposition 125, while the Denver metro area and El Paso County were in favor. La Plata County, in the southwest corner of the state, rejected Proposition 125 by a clear majority, or 57.3% of voters. Denver voters, meanwhile, approved the measure by nearly the opposite, with 55% voting in favor. The measure statewide finished ahead by more than 
thousand votes, far outside the margin at which a recount would be triggered. The split was 50.6% in favor, 49.4% against out of 2.43 million votes. Jack Llewellyn, CEO of the Durango Chamber of Commerce, urged members to consider Proposition 125 in terms of the local impact on local liquor stores. Employees and owners are often the experts who can suggest the perfect wine for every occasion. He fears many local stores will go out of business. In metropolitan areas, you have so many options and choices. The convenience becomes the most important thing and not thinking about a small business owner. Llewellyn said. Things that are decided for our state are decided because the population is in Denver. Proposition 125 opposition felt that there was still hope that it could turn around with thousands of votes remaining last week, even if not all were in metropolitan areas, said Chris Fine, executive director of the Colorado Licensed Beverage Association, which represents small liquor retailers and opposed all three alcohol measures. We know it hasn't been trending in our direction, and obviously that's due to Metro Denver, Arapahoe, and El Paso, and the big counties that have been on the other side of us, Fine said. With Proposition 125, there will still be rules for alcohol sales. Grocery stores can sell wine, but not through self-checkout. The measure also doesn't change any other existing rules, such as the prohibition of sales between midnight and 8 a.m., and no alcohol sales to anyone under 21. Two other alcohol-related measures failed this election. Proposition 124, which failed in all 64 counties, would have let a liquor retailer operate eight locations up from the current three, and then allow companies to have an unlimited number of operating by 2037. Colorado's existing law still allows expansion, but much more slowly. Liquor stores can add up to four locations starting in 2027. And the defeat of Proposition 126, which lost 48.9% to 51.1%, ended plans for alcohol delivery by third parties like DoorDash and Instacart. While advocates had hoped third parties would help small liquor stores expand into delivery if they hadn't yet because they couldn't spare employees, Liquor stores can currently deliver alcohol under existing state statute. They just have to use their own staff and own or lease their own vehicles. The campaign to approve the measure was largely funded by DoorDash and Instacart. At the same time, we are disappointed that thousands of Colorado and small businesses will miss out on vital economic opportunities that third-party alcohol delivery would have provided, said Ryder who represented the Yes on 125 and 126 campaigns. The loss of Proposition 126 also dashed the hope of anyone hoping to keep to-go cocktails flowing. The menu item was an allowance made in the pandemic to help restaurants recover revenues. It ends in July 2025. It's widely known that restaurants have been one of the most devastated industries over the past two years, and it's disheartening to see that voters are not willing to support these businesses and serving their guests in a responsible way. Colorado Restaurant Association President and CEO Sonia Riggs said in a statement, 
Without Proposition 126, alcohol to go is set to expire in summer 2025, and that crucial revenue lifeline will be stripped away from restaurants when they need it most. It will impact customer service, revenue, and the convenience that consumers have come to expect. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more, and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Local voices. Questions about Colorado's second largest utility. Big Pivots by Alan Best. Grocery stores have been consolidating. With utilities, the opposite is occurring. We're seeing some of them start to come apart. Specifically in question is whether Colorado's second largest electrical provider, Tri-State Generation and Transmission, will survive this great pivot in how we produce and consume electricity. Excel Energy, Colorado's largest utility, seems secure in its business model even as the world of electricity turns upside down. It might have the last coal plant standing. Comanche 3, sometimes called Pueblo 3, is scheduled to retire no later than the end of 2030. But the utility has been fleeing coal since at least 2017 when the plunging prices of wind and solar became obvious. The investor-owned utility delivered 52% of all electricity sales in Colorado in 2018. It also reliably gives shareholders of around 9%. Tri-State has no private investors. It was created by electrical cooperatives in 1952 to transmit electricity. Over time, it added coal plants and other generating sources to its portfolio. It delivers power to 42 electrical cooperatives in four states, including 17 in Colorado. A decade ago, Tri-State was stodgy, calcified. At the time, it was still going through the motions of trying to build a humongous coal plant in Kansas. Luckily for its members, Tri-State failed. By 2019, Tri-State had set out to embrace changes. That includes closing its last coal-fired station in Colorado by 2030. The changed outlook in rural Colorado served as the cooperatives was evident in even the agenda items at the annual conference of the Colorado Rural Electric Association in late October. The very name of the conference, Innovation Summit, reflected a recognition of change. Absent were undercurrents of just a few years ago of panel moderators making jokes about climate change with rolls of their eyes. One farmer who said his tractor was already worth more than his house pushed back against the idea of electrification and agricultural implements. That was not the general tenor, though. Rural co-ops mostly accept that we will have to figure out electricity and energy more broadly without emissions into the atmosphere and that electricity will play a broader role in transportation and buildings. Some co-ops have been moving more briskly than others. Holy Cross Energy, the cooperative serving 50,000 members in the Vale, Aspen, and Rifle areas, has an audacious goal of delivering 100% emission-free energy. Brian Hannigan, the chief executive, explained his cooperative's plans for microgrids. 
Holy Cross is one of five cooperatives in Colorado independent of Tri-State. As for Tri-State, 15 years ago, it had a chief executive who poo-pooed the idea of climate change on national television. Now it has a chief executive who openly discusses the way forward toward even deeper emissions cuts. The answers to emissions reductions beyond 80% to 90% are not obvious. Some technology must be scaled up that will balance the intermittency of storage. Deeper thinkers about the energy transition, including Aspen native Hal Harvey, co-author of The Big Fix, says nuclear may deliver the answer. It's not cost-effective now, but at one time neither was solar. Geothermal is another candidate. Both were agenda items at the conference. Might hydrogen work? Dwayne Hiley, the chief executive of Tri-State since April 2018, said he sees hydrogen working nicely when the coal-fired coal plants close in Craig. It could employ existing infrastructure, including transmission lines, and use many of the same skill sets as exi existing workers at Craig. Who will Tri-State's customers be a decade from now? The Tri-State has lost two customers to Denver-based Guzman Electric Energy in recent years, and neither co-op seems to be looking back. Now, two more cooperatives, both in southwestern Colorado, have plans for using a new policy for lesser deliveries of Tri-State electricity. La Plata Electric and San Miguel Power both plant instead get partial supplies, new suppliers. Other co-ops may also exit, either partly or be gone altogether. United Power, serving outlying areas north of Denver, represents more than 20% of Tri-State's total demand. The co-op insists that it will be gone from Tri-State by May 2024 once officials at a federal agency rule on how much United must pay Tri-State to leave remaining members whole. Tri-State has enormous value in its transmission system. Its coal plants, though, appear to re represent a liability, not an asset. It has about $3.26 billion in short- and long-term debt. Will Tri-State, by 2030, look somewhat the same, only sleeker and more agile? Or will it have a new business model altogether? I don't have the questions. I understand the questions, but I don't have the answers. I don't know that anybody does. Alan Best publishes Big Pivots, an e-journal, which is focused on the energy and water transitions in Colorado and beyond. See more at bigpivots.com. How are we impacted by our beliefs about time? Unlearn It by Christine Kahane. The cultural biases we place on time increase our anxiety for perfection during the holidays. However, greater awareness of how your beliefs cause stress and anxiety can help alleviate mounting pressures. Beliefs about what time is worth to you impact your relationships. Although you may think of time as ubiquitous, it's an intensely personal experience. The more conscious you become of how time impacts you, the more you can make choices that serve not only your well-being, but also those around you, chief among them the people with whom you live and work. Here are a few questions you can ask yourself to begin having a more conscious relationship with time. 
What is there always time for, and what is there never time for? Whose time is worth more than others? Who can be kept waiting, and who never waits? What happens to you when you feel you've lost time? At work, what are the costs when optimization and streamlining is placed above relationships? How are you dehumanized by a system that tells you time is money? Your answers to these questions can help you start to unlearn some tightly held beliefs you have about time. During the holiday season, in particular, expectations run high. Family is coming home. You want everything to look like a page out of a magazine. You dream the day will heal old wounds, be magical, or make up for lost time. To take pressure off yourself, consider alternative ways of creating time as you look for the magic in celebration. Query traditions you brought from your childhood. Share ideas together for new traditions and new ways to celebrate. Create a budget and stick to it. Often, a severe cause of a holiday anxiety is the amount of money spent to make it perfect. Volunteer together as a part of your celebration. Time spent doing something for someone in need. Ask family members to take on tasks and make them group fun. Make a gratitude jar and leave pens and paper for people to write what they're grateful for. Share it with the group. Take time for yourself. Let everyone know you'll be unavailable, and then give yourself time: a bubble bath, a walk, a nap. Most of all, allow yourself to be present to enjoy moment by moment the relationship time is affording you. Happy holidays. Christine Kahane, NBC, HWC, MCHWC, is a nationally board-certified health and wellness coach and owner of Kahane Coaching. K A H A N E, www. kahanecoaching. com, located at thirty seven nine two Southview Drive, Suite two zero six in Evergreen, Colorado. For more information about coaching or to write in a question for Unlearn It, send your inquiries to Christine. C H R I S T I N E at Kahane K A H A N E Coaching dot com. Local life: How two brothers plan to save the world by packing a farm in shipping containers. Oler's Garden grows tangy artisanal arugula in climate-controlled trailers. By Michael Booth, The Colorado Sun. The lettuce is blooming nicely on the rollaway walls, according to the farmer's iPad. The calibrated nutrients are flowing smoothly and accurately through the tubes. It's thirty degrees outside, but there's a tantalizing garden of tangy, restaurant-ready produce inside this cozy, pristine shipping container. Somewhere behind and among the pawn shops and the gas stations and the used tire traders and the body shops along South Broadway, on a former used car lot on Acoma Street, a couple of snazzy high-tech containers are parked to start an urban farming revolution. Oler's Garden, launched a few months ago by a couple of brothers who want to save the world and sell some sustainable arugula, is growing the equivalent of a 10-acre farm on a dusty 7,500-square-foot lot. The lettuce and arugula and basil and romaine grow horizontally, while hanging from movable walls packed inside the climate-controlled trailers. 
The farmers sit at a folding table in the nearby shed and plot their next expansion. Stackable farm containers. Nick Millisor, one of the brothers behind Uller's Garden, still can't believe they're doing what they're doing. We are growing local produce in the middle of Denver on an old used car lot, the kind you used to roll your car windows up when you drove by, Millisor laughs. Vertical farms don't stint on flavor. And their stuff tastes great. The emerald green basil snaps with a hint of licorice. The arugula is laced with a wild mustard flavor. The butter lettuce sold with root ball intact has an earthy flavor belying the fact that growing walls are purposefully insulated from any local dirt. One trailer with 365 days of optimal growing conditions can produce the equivalent of a five-acre seasonal farm, Nick and Luke Millisor say. Employing a closed loop for the water and nutrients, each trailer only uses about five gallons a day from the water buffaloes they fill off-site. We don't even have a water tap here yet, Nick laughed. And when the weather turns truly frigid, say 10 degrees from a recent overnight snow, a conscientious farmer can check on the baby bib while sitting at home in bed with a laptop. If anything isn't running optimally, the farm will literally send me a text message. Nick said, waving his iPhone over the transplanting tables. Sensors throughout the trailer are connected to Wi-Fi. Urban farming and hydroponics, a great mix, experts say. Independent experts on vertical hydroponic farming say they can't predict the success of Oler's business model, but agree the revolution in well-designed shipping containers could indeed preserve the environment and extend better nutrition to remote consumers. Rising world population, scarce water amid climate change and urban neighborhoods neglected by fresh food stores, these are the multifaceted reasons why we're seeing this surge in interest, said Josh Craver, an assistant professor in controlled environment horticulture at Colorado State University. It's not hard to see pretty quickly that you can produce per square foot way more food in these containers than you can in the field, Craver said. We are growing local produce in the middle of Denver on an old used car lot, the kind you used to roll your car windows up when you drove by. The Oler's Garden name for their parking lot container farm honors the brothers' time growing up and skiing in Breckenridge, home to the Oler Fest Winter Sports Party. Nick Millisor comes at farming with all the technical skills of a self-described liberal arts eclectic and sci-fi nerd. He's been toiling in real estate when the strange winds of COVID and climate change turned his 2021 upside down, and he went in search of a meaningful project to better the world. There was a week where Germany flooded and the West was burning and a Canadian heat wave was cooking shellfish alive in the ocean. I didn't want to deal with super rich people's problems with real estate anymore, Nick Millisor said, and so I convinced my brother to join me. And then my cousin, I uh, was like, you just want to do something crazy and start growing food in a container? And they said yes. Luke Millsor supplied the actual technical knowledge from his experience managing a neuroscience lab at University of Colorado. Colorado's increasing water challenges led them toward water-stingy hydroponic farming into the equipment catalogs of storage container outfitters. We're not the only ones doing this, you know. 
I would love to say that we're the pioneers behind this, but a lot of smarter people have basically led us to this point where this technology is almost automatic, Nick Millsor said. It's so easy. I mean, I have zero experience farming other than growing stuff in my mom's garden as a kid. Muller's garden sent itself to indoor farm training. The container outfitters supplied a two-day boot camp on vertical farming. The would-be farmers learned there's almost zero water use in the latest designs. No contamination or runoff with excess fertilizer or pesticides. Precise control of nutrients. Efficient LED lighting powered by clean electricity. They have two electric vehicles to deliver produce within a five-mile radius, boosting their effort to become carbon neutral with the overall operation. Leaving the root ball on the head of lettuce helps it last on the shelf for a couple of weeks and reduces food waste. A fully outfitted container with 24,000 individual LED pinpoint lights and temperature controlled at 68 to 70 degrees costs about $170,000, Nick Millser said. Oler's Garden can produce five can grow 500 varieties of produce to meet the whims of the market and tweak the grow lights for goals as esoteric as the optimal color for, of a red lettuce leaf. Accelerating efficiencies in lighting and heating have powered the surge in hydroponic container farms, said CSU's Craver. Old grow lamps built up, build up too much heat, while improved LEDs produce precise photons that the plant can employ for photosynthesis. So we really are sitting on the shoulders of giants on this one, Nick Millisar said. Vertical and remote, but not out of touch. As the water drips down the wall channels and then recirculates, sensors constantly check pH and mineral levels, among other growth factors. Reserve tanks dribble and supplement adjustments to the mix at the touch of the iPad. Key in sitting the containers is pouring concrete footings at a 2% tilt, to guarantee the water flow. Most varieties started from seeds are ready in six to seven weeks. Harvesting means clean scissors, trimming the walls, or pulling the whole heads with root balls. Now about that business model. Negotiating with individual restaurants may not be the full answer. Though Oler's Garden is in talks with a few looking for local supply and input into the varieties. The next challenge for the Millisaurs, joined by cousin and chief financial officer Ian Randall, is to launch a farm share program. Other farm share subscriptions are popular in summer and fall, with buyers picking up or getting delivered a box of outdoors-grown seasonal items, ranging from lettuce to tomatoes to squash. But the outdoor shares run out by late fall, where Uller's Garden can deliver lettuce, herbs, and other greens year-round. The company has 150 shares on sale now to be delivered within the five-mile radius. A prime calculation in close-quarters farming, Craver said, is which plants draw top dollar for the space they take up. Corn is all fibrous scaffolding, producing a handful of kernels that sell for 25 cents an ear. Root ball lettuce is nearly 100% edible and can retail for 5 or $6 a head. There are large hydroponic operations in Metro Denver that appear to be thriving, Craver said. And smaller operations like Oler's Garden are busy figuring out their costs at a workable scale. When you look at the business model, it definitely does work, Craver said. 
I didn't want to deal with super rich people's problems with real estate anymore. I was like, you just want to do something crazy and start growing food in a container? And they said yes. Of course, there's a lucrative container model selling billions of dollars of product a year in Colorado. Marijuana. The mill stores, they, though, are adamant they want to feed the world, not medicate it. Denver's zoning office is well organized to approve urban farming, Nick Millsor said, but they did have to address the elephant in the container. I was like, I'm doing a hydroponic garden, and you could just see it in their eyes. Oh no, there's another one. And I was like, not marijuana, not marijuana. And she's like, okay, stamp, get out of here. Container farms could be stackable. The Ullers Garden Trio plots their next move from underneath the modest shed looking out on the lot. If marketing picks up and the consumer direct shares work out, there's room for expansion with ground space for two or three more containers. Plus, as anyone who's seen a modern port city can tell you, they're stackable. Ullers Garden anticipates going at least a second story of vertical, and perhaps more if the zoning folks are feeling frisky. They're considering transforming the shed into an events and education space, knowing that school children would thrive on a cool hydroponics and LED lesson. As for the produce, they're still considering winter decorative flowers, edible flowers, and could draw top dollar and radishes. One grower figured out how to do hops indoors. Another grew berries, though that may not scale up to be useful. One constant, besides the 68 degrees inside the trailers, is how welcoming and helpful everyone in vertical farming has been and sharing tips with Uller's garden, Nick Millsor said. Everyone has the tool. Now everyone's kind of figuring out how to best use it, he said. And that's what I think is most exciting for me. This story is from the Colorado Sun, journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.